Welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and founder of PCOS Diva. My mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. Today's PCOS Diva podcast is sponsored by the seven-day Discover Your PCOS Diva Jumpstart program. Jumpstart is the place to begin when you're ready to commit to yourself and jump into your healing journey. If you haven't already, make sure you check out PCOSDiva.com. There I offer tons of great free information about PCOS and how to develop your PCOS diet and lifestyle plan so you can begin to thrive like a PCOS Diva. On today's episode of the PCOS Diva podcast, we are putting one of our favorite OBGYNs in the hot seat. Dr. Poppy Daniels has agreed to come on to the podcast and ask some of your burning questions. But before we get to that, I just wanted to um, introduce my co-host, Dr. Vini Jyothi. She um, is a MD and after finishing medical school, she did her master's in public health at the University of Texas at Houston. And because of her passion for preventative health, especially women's health, Along with her passion, she also brings her expertise and 10 plus years of experience in clinical research and preventative medicine. And Dr. Vinu has her own personal journey with PCOS. And she, like me, firmly believes that holistic approaches can be the best and efficient strategy. So thanks for being here with me, Dr. Vinu, as we interview Dr. Poppy. Thank you, Amy. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, I look forward to hearing from Dr. Poppy as well. So before we begin, uh, here's a little bio about Dr. Poppy. Dr. Poppy Daniels is a gynecologist who attended undergraduate and medical school at the University of Missouri, Columbia. She completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at Drexel University in Philadelphia. And she has been in private practice since 2003. She is also a hormone specialist, and in addition to traditional OBGYN services, she has undertaken many specialized hours of training in bioidentical hormone therapy, integrative thyroid treatment, and holistic health. We are very happy to welcome you, Dr. Poppy Daniels. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, I know you've been on previous episodes of this podcast where you talked about progesterone therapy and PCOS and also about your book, Dangers of Depo, that talked about the dangers of the Depo shot. And for our viewers who are new, um, the show notes do have recordings of the previous podcast, which you could go back and listen to. And uh, Dr. Poppy, we did open up to our uh, viewers, you know, we asked them what questions you like to ask um, Dr. Daniels, and uh, they had some questions for us. So I'm going to start with one question that a lot of our uh, viewers had, and that was how to address hormone changes at menopause when you've already dealt with years of PCOS issues. Yes, and I think that there's kind of this idea that if you reach menopause, you won't have to deal with PCOS anymore because you don't have periods anymore. Um, But that's actually not the case. Um, And so whenever a woman transitions to 
not having periods be the issue, but having more sort of hormonal symptoms. Honestly, my approach is the same, whether you have PCOS or not. And that is that I like to test hormones and I prefer saliva hormone testing. It is more accurate than blood work when it comes to the sex hormones and the adrenal function. Um, Amy, you mentioned adrenal fatigue and or adrenal insufficiency or hypofunction. It, that is a huge problem in our stressful world. And most of us, you know, are um, doing a lot of things, being productive and have lots of our uh, multitasking things that we're doing. Um, but with stress and lack of sleep and dietary, you know, variability, then our adrenals can really be affected by all of those things. So the reason I really enjoy saliva hormone testing is because it includes adrenal testing. And so, um, you're looking at your female hormones, your male hormones, or your androgens, which obviously is a big issue for women with PCOS. Um, and then your adrenals. Um, and so androgens, you know, with PCOS can be produced in the ovary or in the adrenal gland. And so, um, it is good to sort of track those levels as you're going and transitioning into menopause. Um, I of course use natural or bioidentical hormone therapy, uh, for women of all ages. So that certainly doesn't change going into menopause transition. Um, but it's interesting because even women who don't have PCOS and are used to having regular cycles as they enter their forties and enter the perimenopause, they're often, often experiencing irregular periods. And so they're like, what's going on here? And of course, PCOS women are very familiar with that issue. Um, and so a lot of women are just like, am I menopausal? Am I perimenopausal? Or do I just have PCOS? Um, and so we can utilize using uh, FSH or LH testing to see if it looks like, you know, you are sort of in the transition or it looks like you have kind of moved through that as opposed to this is just a long period of anovulation. And of course, that is common with PCOS patients. So yes, go ahead. I, I, um, you mentioned saliva hormone testing. I was just curious what your opinion is on the Dutch test or the dried urine, um, sampling for your hormones. Yeah, I am not a huge fan of the Dutch test. Um, I know it's kind of the new kid on the block and everybody is talking about it. Um, first of all, I don't think it makes sense to look at urinary metabolites when you are able to directly measure hormone levels. So to me, it's like, I don't really wanna know what the downstream hormone levels are. I wanna know what the actual hormone levels are. Um, and so uh, I also think it's very expensive. Um, expensive. I, I just looked at the price today. I think it was $499 for- Yeah, so yeah. my saliva tests are usually under $200. So they're- very reasonable for patients. Um, I use two different companies, CRT lab and Diagnostex. Um, and I don't get any kind of reimbursement from them for them. So this is not advertising, but I just, um, have used both of those companies through the years and I'm very comfortable sort of reading and interpreting those reports. And so 
lots of women will come in and say, okay, th this is what was going off my hormones a year ago. This is what was going on with my periods a year ago. Here's what's going on now. And so usually we use a combination of blood work and saliva hormone testing to kind of figure out where that woman's hormones are at currently. Mm -hmm. And you really need that baseline to, to do, you know, move forward with any type of therapies. Absolutely. And I like to show the patients their levels and say, here's where you were. Here's what your level shows. This looks like you were ovulating. This looks like you weren't ovulating and this is what's going on. Plus, you know, they're telling me what their symptoms are. Are they having hot flashes, night sweats, mood, mood swings, vaginal dryness, you know, all of the hormonal type symptoms. And that helps us to develop a treatment plan from there. Mm -hmm. So what happens when your doctor tells you that um, a hysterectomy will make all of your PCOS symptoms go away <laughs> at this point? Well, the reason that's not true is that we continue to produce androgens in the adrenal glands. And so you're not going to have your adrenal glands removed when, even if you have your ovaries removed. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I have definitely documented this on women who are post hysterectomy with bilateral removal of the ovaries that they are still producing excess androgens in the adrenal gland. So they could still be dealing with PCOS type issues, even if they're not having a period. So what are some of um, like the key treatments, I guess, for, for women with PCOS in menopause um, that you suggest to your patients? Is there kind of like a overarching first line therapy? You know, I think it just really depends on their symptoms. And so it's just like anything else with PCOS. It's a very individualized treatment plan. Um, obviously you, Amy, for a long time have focused on dietary issues, supplements, sleep, stress management, all of these things are super important for everyone, but especially PCOS patients, you know, of course, with the metabolic side of PCOS, we always want to see, is that getting worse now that I'm getting older, as you guys probably know, metabolic changes increase as you get older, your metabolic rate goes down. So insulin resistance can start to be more of an issue as you get older. Um, obviously your activity levels may change and that, you know, can affect your metabolism as well. Um, but it, it's just sort of a coordinated look at your actual symptoms, how you look on paper, as far as your blood work, um, and how, how you feel, you know, physically and emotionally. Mm -hmm. Great. What's our, what's our second question? Okay. So with the last couple of years, you know, all everyone's been dealing with has been COVID and uh, that's where we're going in next. So how does COVID impact women with PCOS? Are, you know, PCO, women with PCOS more likely to have the long haul symptoms due to COVID? Um, that's, you know, that's hard to say. I would say that long haulers, you know, we do know that long haulers do tend to be more predominantly female. Um, and I would say a lot of long haulers do sort of have some similarities with 
patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, chronic Epstein-Barr virus, um, and they can be dealing with nutritional or um, vitamin deficiencies. So, but we, we do see that something with COVID affects the mitochondria. And that is why there's so much fatigue with COVID infections. So the mitochondria, um, you know, I always say that remember from high school biology, your mitochondria are the powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> everyone yeah. remembers that. Yes. <laughs> Even if they have no science interest at all, everyone remembers that. So I say, so remember if you're trying to make ATP and you're trying to make energy, if your mitochondria are negatively affected by this virus, then you're going to be extremely tired. And of course that is, I would say almost universal, uh, symptom that people have with COVID infections is just extreme fatigue, mm -hmm. even above and beyond normal respiratory stuff. You know, like I am dealing, I'm getting over a cold right now. Um, I've got some post-nasal drainage down the back of my throat. And I sound terrible, but I feel fine. So mm -hmm. I can go to work. I can function. I'm not like debilitated like I was when I had COVID. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, some people are already dealing with mitochondria issues, mm -hmm. you know, and so adding COVID back onto that, I think sometimes it ends up sending on some people on a path of chronic fatigue syndrome and having a really, really hard time recovering from that. So I really believe that a holistic approach to for long haulers has to involve uh, nutrition, has to involve treating vitamin deficiencies and giving supplements for mitochondria support, um, trying to deal with um, this sort of chronic reactivation syndrome that we became familiar with, with Epstein-Barr virus. Um, so, you know, you could have mono when you're 15 and then when you're 30 or 40, you're like going through these bouts of fatigue and uh, achiness and flu-like symptoms. And, you know, you go to the doctor and they say, you're fine. And of course, people love to tell women it's in their head and, you know, you're making this up and you just getting older or you have kids, you know, the usual stuff women are told whenever they have medical issues that they don't ever tell men that um, they never say to 50 year old men, you know what, you're getting older and you have children. That's why you don't feel well. <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> So I think that's a big part of the long hauler part. Do I think that PCOS women are necessarily more susceptible to COVID? I mean, all of that, there's so many factors that play into that, you know, uh, whether you have uh, other medical problems, whether you do have diabetes, whether you have, um, you know, your immune system is down or you have autoimmune disease. Um, or your vitamin D is really low, you know, we, we know the data is really good to show that people who have vitamin D deficiency do much worse with COVID. Um, that's, you know, something most, most PCOS patients know that vitamin D is very important and keeping their levels up are important. So if your level is low, then you are going to be more susceptible to COVID and other, you know, respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's so frustrating too right now because I know I went to have my physical and I asked for a vitamin D test and they said, you know, unless you were low previously, you know, your insurance won't, won't pay for that. Um, so insure, you know, they, they make it very difficult for us to find out what our vitamin D level is. Um, and I think that you need, just like you need a baseline hormone test, you need a baseline vitamin D because, you know, some, if you go to the, your, your store, you'll see vitamin D, um, like 10,000, um, units, uh, you can see it, you know, 2000 seems to be sort of the standard but you wouldn't know how much to take unless you, um, I'm going on a, on a, uh, a rant here, but yeah, it, it, they don't make it easy for us is my point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, I mean, every, every physical I pay out of pocket to get my vitamin D tested and then it's low enough that I need to get prescription strength vitamin D. Like you said, it's not just enough. It's over the counter sometimes. So yeah. And you're yes. in North Carolina, which mm -hmm. you get you get a little more sun than we do up here in New York. Right. Oh, yeah. Except our jobs, you know, all of that keeps us inside most of the time. So it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. So so the next question, um, Dr. Poppy, is is there actually a correlation between infertility and the vaccine, therefore making it a double whammy to women with PCOS? Yeah, so I mean, it's too bad we don't have like three hours to talk because we could probably talk for three hours about this issue. Um, I mean, there, there are a lot of problems with the rollout of the vaccine in regards to women who are of childbearing age and potential and men of childbearing age and potential. Um, this was brand new technology. We had no prior uh, mRNA vaccines or medications that were being used. And on top of that, it was obviously fast-tracked. Um, and so unfortunately, there really uh, was very minimal um, looking at fertility effects and honestly, you can't really tell fertility effects um, for years. Mm -hmm. You cannot tell in one year or two years. I mean, really you need three to five years with ongoing assessment to identify fertility concerns. Um, and so I think that my concern all along with the pandemic was a lack of informed consent. And as a physician for 20 years, I have always been very dedicated to the concept of informed consent because otherwise then uh, patients can feel coerced, um, patients can feel pressured, patients can feel um, that they don't have adequate information to make a decision, but they feel rushed. And all of that took place over the last three years. And yeah. it was appalling because that approach was really uh, supported by our national organizations. And, and I can give you some, um, I have some <clears throat> statements that were issued by uh, the American College of OBGYN. Of course, that's my national organization. 
I don't really identify with them anymore because they don't represent me well. So I stopped paying dues to them a long time ago. But a lot of OBGYNs and a lot of doctors in general are very busy and they're seeing patients and they're busy and they rely on these national organizations to guide their clinical practice. And it's a, it's a shame to say that many of the doctors are actually not reading the literature. They're not reading studies. They're just saying, well, my national organization wouldn't recommend it if it wasn't good, you know, <laughs> or if they're not expressing caution, then it must be fine. Okay. Because, you know, it, it, it's sort of one of those things we can't fathom that they would take a risk with our health uh, when, you know, they're, they're sort of, it, it's sort of all of our public health. I'm sure you know this, Vinu, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, we would expect that they would be representing our best interests in preserving our health, mm-hmm. you know? And so when it seemed to come out that there was this immense pressure to go ahead and accept this technology without question, I think that I was immediately concerned about that. Um, I obviously have a very large fertility practice um, because, you know, I, I see a lot of PCOS patients who, of course, PCOS is the number one cause of hormone-related infertility. Um, and so I see lots and lots of PCOS patients, but lots of patients who are just dealing with infertility in general. And so um, to me, it, it was extremely concerning that there seemed to be no level of caution whatsoever on the part of our national organizations. And the concern with COVID, of course, is obvious. Nobody is not concerned about COVID. And of course it was very scary. It was very concerning. It was very, um, you know, nobody really understood what was happening. This is the first time something this, um, this global of a scale in our lifetimes has happened. And so I don't know about you, but I was reading and reading and reading as much as I could do. Um, trying to understand, you know, the process of what was happening. Um, And so that uh, really bothered me that the American College of OBGYN, and I'll see if I can pull up the exact statement that they made. Um, I have it right here. Um, And it wasn't just the American College of OBGYN, but it was also the male societies. So the urological, um, the urological institutions were basically doing the same thing, which is they were saying, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. Um, so let me just read you. So the American society of reproductive medicine is the national, one of the national fertility organizations. Um, and, they made a joint statement um, and they basically, and this was uh, December of 2020. So the vaccine rollout was December of 2020, uh, December and January, 2021. They basically said um, for men, uh, the society for uh, 
the study of male reproduction and the Society for Male Reproduction and Urology. Um, has that we have recommended that the COVID-19 vaccine should not be withheld from men desiring fertility who meet criteria for vaccination. COVID-19 vaccine should be offered to men desiring fertility, similar to men not desiring fertility when they meet criteria for vaccination. Um, the only thing that they said was that it should be noted that about 16% of men in the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine clinical trial experienced fever after the second dose. And fevers can cause temporary declines in sperm production. So because of the fever, you might have a change in your, you know, sperm production. Um, and obviously, you know, that's true. Yes, fever can cause a change in your sperm production. But saying that and saying, you know, well, there, there's no way it's actually the vaccine that's affecting your sperm production, that, that's a problem. Um, and then the American College of OBGYN and the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine recommended the COVID vaccine for pregnancy. And, you know, I just think it's completely unethical to offer a new technology to women who are trying to conceive or who are pregnant when you have no safety data. You certainly don't have any long-term safety data, but even immediate safety data, you can't even, I mean, if you're recommending it, you know, a month after rollout, you have no idea what's going on. So I found this hugely irresponsible. Um, and I thought that that was a terrible idea. At this point, we didn't even know the effect of COVID on fertility. Mm -hmm. So if you don't even know what the infection is doing, how do you know what the new technology yes. vaccination is doing? Um, so I've always been a bit of a skeptic in general. <laughs> I am someone that works for myself. I'm independent. So I did not work for a hospital. I'm sure it would have been much more difficult for me to, it was still difficult for me to voice these concerns. Mm -hmm. um, I have been majorly censored on social media. Of course. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, Dr. Poppy, when I was researching for this podcast, right, I looked up articles about uh, menstruation and how it's been impacted by the vaccine. And a couple of articles that I looked up talked about, you know, uh, the menstrual cycle is delayed you know there is definitely a delay um they say and all of them both of both of the articles did say there was not enough information or not enough research done and in fact before the rollout of the vaccine when they even in the testing phase um menstrual cycle or you know if it's impacting wasn't even in the questionnaire or wasn't even one of the concerns for the vaccine yeah. So, you know, if if that wasn't a concern, you know, fertility is like so far off, I would think, right? Yeah, so I want to point your listeners and you all to a systematic review mm -hmm. um, that was published um, in the um, journal article Vacunas, V-A-C-U-N-A-S. And the title, the last name of the lead author is Nazir, N-A-Z-I-R. 
and it's called Menstrual Abnormalities After COVID-19 Vaccines, a Systematic Review. And what this was a very large systematic review, 78,000 patients mm -hmm. and 52%. So more than half of the women who took the COVID vaccines experienced menstrual abnormalities. And so this is a very, very high level. <laughs> I mean, more than half, that's mm -hmm. one and two, basically, were experiencing menstrual abnormalities. And so the um, variation with that is great. So there were a lot of women experiencing heavier periods, more frequent periods, passing clots, um, having really, you know, went from being very regular to being very abnormal. Okay. Then on the flip side, you have women that were not having their period at all. In fact, there is a national, there is an international group called Where Is My Cycle, or in French, Uet Mon Cycle, and it is collecting data in um, France and other European countries about women who are not having their period, um, so sort of amenorrhea, or lack of a period after vaccination. Of course, many of those women were wanting to conceive, and not having your period is obviously evidence of not ovulating. So this group has, it's more of a grassroots effort that has come forth and they uh, are sort of demanding public hearings about the menstrual abnormalities that are happening uh, because of vaccination. So obviously, you know, if you take someone with PCOS who already has irregular periods and then they have worsening of that, that is just a terrible situation for a PCOS patient. Have you seen um, in your practice kind of anecdotally um, any correlation? And, and also, um, you know, there's sort of talk about miscarriage rates potentially rising. I mean, are you seeing any evidence of that correlate? And I know it just like asking in your private practice. Um, yes. The answer to that is yes. Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes. Miscarriages, premature birth, stillbirth, a large amount of placental abnormalities. So we're seeing a very strange phenomenon of irregular or misshapen placentas. Now, the interesting thing is not all of these women were vaccinated. And so, there's a concept uh, that's talked about of shedding. Okay. Right. Can you hear me? Can you yeah. hear me? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and shedding is kind of a weird term to use because whenever we think of shedding, we think of viral shedding, right? So if you have a viral infection and it's active, that virus can be in your body fluids. And if you're exposed to someone, probably the easiest one to understand would be the herpes virus. So if you have a herpes infection, you have a herpes lesion on your mouth, you have herpes virus in your saliva, and you kiss someone, then you can transfer that virus. So a lot of people are like shedding, they're thinking, you know, viral shedding. But when it comes to vaccination, the problem that you have is a massive production of spike protein. People can uh, relate to the concept of shedding from 
viral shedding if you have an infection. And so whenever people say shedding, it's kind of a weird concept to them when it comes to the vaccine. But the idea with the vaccine is that the intention of the vaccine is to produce spike protein in your body. So the MRA is programmed to produce spike protein and that spike protein is produced in actually great quantity in the ribosomes in the cells and then are distributed throughout the body. So this is a big area of controversy because when the vaccines were first rolled out, the implication was this is just happening in the deltoid after injection that is not going anywhere else in the body. And actually we know that to be false because of Pfizer's own data of biodistribution. So um, it's actually Japanese data of biodistribution of spike protein in the body after injection and it goes everywhere in the body. And concerningly, it actually goes and is concentrated in the ovaries and in the adrenal glands and many other organs. And so basically your body is turned into a spike protein factory and is churning out tons and tons of quantity of spike protein. Um, the objective was to produce spike protein to initiate an antibody response. So then you would be immune to the spike protein. But unfortunately, if you're mass producing spike protein, then you're going to have that spike protein be all over your body and then in your body fluids. So, um, the concern is that if you were near someone who was recently vaccinated, and I would say it is more likely to have an effect if it was within a week, but maybe probably up to a month, maybe even longer than that, that you could just be exposed to their body fluids or even just, you know, through touching, through breathing, you don't necessarily have to be kissing this person to be getting an effect from them. So lots of women were um, experiencing menstrual abnormalities being around recently vaccinated people, even if they themselves were not vaccinated. And so um, <clears throat> it sounds crazy. And because of that, you know, this whole conversation that we're having if we had this conversation a year ago, it would have certainly been labeled misinformation, fake news, um, disinformation, and instead of what it should be, which is just a discussion about what people are experiencing and about the technology in general. And so the menstrual abnormalities makes you say, okay, if there are period problems, then there are hormone problems. And then if there are hormone problems, then there are potentially fertility problems. And this sort of concern that we're discussing and talking about here was very actively dismissed, um, if not suppressed um, from general discussion, especially in social media. So um, if you sort of brought up any concerns about this, 
then they uh, would censor you. Even me as a physician, uh, it didn't matter because if you have your social media groups employing fact checkers, these fact checkers will say, you know, this person is a poor source of information. This person posts misinformation about COVID. Instead of us just being able to have an educated discussion about what is being seen. And so that's kind of a long-winded answer, but it is a very complex topic. And the fact that we were really not allowed to discuss it publicly is very concerning as well. Yeah, thank you so much for, for giving us your, your insights. I can absolutely tell you firsthand that I experienced um, you know, a lot of what you were talking about. <laughs> With yes. US Diva, um, and I'm glad. I'm, you know, I'm hoping that it, that that we can finally have this conversation and it not be censored. Uh, just, you know, I wanted to just follow up with what are your thoughts on on some of these detox protocols? I know um, pine um, pine needle um, extract is one of those things that I I keep seeing as a way to kind of detox spike proteins. I mean, I know that there isn't a lot of research done, but um, yeah. anything that you have found might, might be promising? Yeah, this is a really difficult thing because, um, you know, I, I, as a holistic sort of functional minded practitioner, I am very interested in detoxification for many different reasons, you know, and I do employ it with my patients. Um, but this, this is concerning because what you're doing, at least with the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA, you're literally programming your body to make a protein. And it's really hard to say how we can eliminate that from your body. The other problem that you have is the mRNA is very fragile. And so they encased the mRNA in what's called lipid nanoparticles. And this is basically like a little fatty ball that helps the mRNA to get into the cells because otherwise, because it's so fragile, it would be degraded. So they wrapped it in this lipid nanoparticle that also contains polyethylene glycol or PEG. And polyethylene glycol is very allergenic. It, there are people that are allergic to PEG, um, but it, and it can cause anaphylaxis in those patients. And so uh, PEG is concerning in general because it is a known allergen that can trigger the immune system just from that. Uh, but there is literature that shows the, that the lipid nanoparticles themselves are actually dangerous um, and harmful to the reproductive system. And this is, um, this is actually data that was out way before the vaccine. And um, I have an article I'll cite you here that uh, this is an article by lead author Wang, W-A-N-G, and it's published in the International Journal of Nanomedicine, and the title is Potential Adverse Effects of Nanoparticles on the Reproductive System. 
And so this article um, basically says that there's evidence that these nano, lipid nanoparticles, they can pass the, the blood testicle barrier, they can pass the placental barrier, and they can accumulate in the reproductive organs. So that can be in the testes, in the ovaries, in the uterus. Um, and it also showed that there's evidence that these nanoparticles can disrupt hormone secretions. And so it can actually affect your production of LH, FSH, and that is your brain trying to communicate with your ovary about ovulation. Um, <clears throat> so these, these, these nanoparticles, these lipid nanoparticles are themselves inflammatory and they cause oxidative stress and they basically cause cytokine release in your body. And as you probably have heard about just from regular COVID infections, cytokine storm is part of the phase, the second phase of an active COVID infection. And when you have cytokine storm going on in the body, you basically have a massive release of chemicals or cytokines that cause you to become very ill. And so it's sort of a very dangerous phase of the COVID infection because a lot of people, especially if they have underlying health issues or they're older, um, they can't tolerate that. They become very, very ill. Um, and, you know, that release of cytokines intentionally by taking something into your body intentionally is a whole nother ball game. And so it's not just the spike protein that we have to worry about. It's the lipid nanoparticles. Um, we do have some autopsy data of people who died, who had had the COVID, COVID vaccine, who had massive amounts of spike protein in their organs at autopsy. So we really honestly don't know how long this can go on in your body. And we don't, honestly, we don't know how to remove spike protein and we don't know how to remove lipid nanoparticles. Normal detoxification things that you, what you mentioned, Amy, pine needle, of course, people use a lot of different things for detoxification. They use um, glutathione or NAC and acetylcysteine. This is your body's main target against toxins. Um, so taking those things in addition to, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory or, or antioxidants like turmeric, like vitamin C, resveratrol, these kinds of things are very important to try to maintain your body's uh, hold on these things that are causing oxidative stress. But the, the truth is, we don't honestly know if we can get rid of these things or not. So I'm, I'm hoping that you could send us um, some of links to some of the studies that you're mentioning. So people yes. and, and Dr. Venu will post the links that she was talking about as well. We'll put those in the show notes so people can, you know, do, do your own um, investigation and research to follow up on this question. But I was wondering if you had time for one more question. Sure. 
So I thought I would kind of bring it full circle from the menopause um, back to PCOS and adolescence. And I'm asking this for kind of a selfish reason because now I have a, a 14 year old whose mother has PCOS and grandmother and aunt. <laughs> um, and you, she's had one period at 13 and a half and she's 14 now, she hasn't had another. Um, at what point, um, you know, do adolescents, are they diagnosed with PCOS? And how can you go in empowered to your doctor's office um, to refuse the birth control pill? Because I know that if I go to her pediatrician, <laughs> that's the first thing they're going to say is, oh, we'll just put her on the pill and it'll regulate yes. the cycle. Absolutely. Um, so again, Amy, that could probably be a whole show in itself, yeah. how to advocate, how to advocate for yourself in the doctor's office. <laughs> um, you know, the question of, is this PCOS or is this normal puberty? That is a very big question. Okay. Because you have excess androgen production during puberty, you have irregular periods during puberty. Um, you know, a lot of times we say, okay, it takes up to three years for the uh, pituitary gonadal axis to really mature and start operating normally. And so you don't want to label someone with PCOS who just has normal sort of delayed puberty or, you know, things like that. Um, but if someone has had a period and then not had another period for a year and has a family history of PCOS, I would certainly have that very high on my radar. Um, and I would certainly do testing for, you know, LH, FSH, prolactin. I would look at their sort of uh, metabolic side, their lipids, their insulin, their A1C, um, their AMH level, their FSH LH ratio. And I would be trying to ascertain. Is this someone that I need to try to get to have their period? And I probably would be giving them a trial of progesterone to see if I could bring the period on. Um, because you need to know, is this just someone who is just kind of slow to get into puberty? And you need to look at their secondary sex characteristics, their breast development, their hair development, um, and take all of that into account when you're trying to determine the best route. But unfortunately, Amy, you and I both know very well, uh, you know, my saying birth control has dumbed down doctors and honestly, they and nurse practitioners and PAs and midwives. And honestly, they just want to give birth control for everything. They don't want to use their brain. They don't want to do a workup. Well, let's just start you on birth control. And that is. Uh, really difficult when you have as much knowledge of the process of these hormonal imbalances. And so what my, my main advice is really seek out a holistic uh, gynecologist if possible. The other source is a doctor that's trained in NAPRO technology. NAPRO technology or NAPRO technology is actually an offshoot of the Catholic church and they don't use birth control. So they use a lot of natural hormones and um, much more of a comprehensive approach to women's health. 
Um, so you can look at fertilitycare.org to find a medical consultant who is trained in NAPRO who does not use birth control. Um, you can look at the Society for Reproductive Professionals, which is not the one that I mentioned, it's not the mainstream group, but is also uh, focused on getting to the bottom of these gynecological issues with patients. And then finally, if you go to the saliva testing websites, many of them will have practitioners on there that utilize saliva hormone testing. Those are the ones you want to seek out who are more holistic, who use bioidentical hormones, who are less likely to just knee-jerk prescribe birth control. Uh, all ex excellent resources. Thank you. And I'm going to be checking those out. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And, um, and thank you so much for, for coming on and, and answering these, um, you know, some difficult questions. <laughs> it's not an easy topic, but you know what, if we don't talk about it, we're not going to move forward. So, you know, it, it should be the free exchange of ideas and information so that people can, uh, start to develop questions, start to, um, understand science, start to apply critical thinking to the things that are going on around them. And I mean, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. So we need to do more of this kind of thing. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to do that with us today. It is my pleasure, Amy. And, and um, Dr. Poppy, how can we learn more about your your work and your practice and, and tell us again about your book. Okay. So, uh, I have a website, drpoppy.com. Um, on that website, I actually have an ebook that is a fertility ebook, uh, that I put my, uh, lots of fertility pearls in, um, and it's very low cost, especially compared to an office visit or especially compared to going to see uh, a fertility doctor specialist usually. So it's a great starting place for people who are just trying to figure out their fertility workup and questions to ask. Um, I have a book called The Dangers of Depot that is available on Amazon. I am my co-author who was actually a patient who was not my patient, but a patient that was damaged by the depot shot. Uh, she and I co-wrote the book together, and it's a lot about uh, the side effects of depot and how to recover from that. I am on Facebook, Dr. Poppy. I am on Instagram and Twitter at Dr. Poppy, B-H-R-T. Uh, I am on Telegram. And the telegram is dr underscore p-o-p-p-y, Dr. Poppy. Um, and I'm happy to connect with anyone who has questions on those platforms. Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Poppy. And uh, it was a real pleasure talking with you today. And thanks to all our listeners.
Well, that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us on the PCOS Diva podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you liked this episode, remember to subscribe to PCOS Diva on iTunes or wherever else you may be listening to this show. And if you have a minute, please leave me a quick review on iTunes because I love to hear from you. 